all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's a story in the Old Testament about the nation of Israel and how they longed to have a king. They had been ruled by judges because God was their king. But Israel wanted to be so much like the other nations that they began to pine and even whine for a king. They, they sounded like a, a petulant little two-year-old. Give me a king! We don't know if it's because they thought it would make them more respected. They, it's not, we don't know if it's because they thought it would be a better form of government than the judges. Or maybe it was just that they were rejecting God. All we know is that they kept demanding, and so God gave in. God tells the prophet Samuel to anoint a man by the name of Saul. Saul looked like a king. Saul was a head taller than everyone else. He was probably really, really good looking. He probably had one of those like envious, low, you know, James Earl Jones voices, you know, the kind that makes a guy like me go, why can't I have that? You know, like he just seemed like a king. And so the people celebrate, we finally have a king. And this young man, Saul, he, he was a little bit on the shy side. He had some doubts, some insecurities. He didn't know if he could really pull off this king thing. But over time, his mind and heart began to change. He went from this shy, insecure young man to starting to think he could have whatever he wanted. Because after all, he's the king. In 1 Samuel 15, we read a story about the prophet Samuel telling King Saul that God wants them to go and fight against the Amalekites. But when they go fight them, when they beat them, the, 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 the instructions were to destroy everything, including the livestock. Now, to destroy the livestock would be like the modern-day equivalent of a nation defeating another, taking all their gold, their silver, all their possessions, all their wealth, and dumping it down a bottomless pit where it could never be retrieved. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, that's where the wealth is. And yet God is saying, I want you to destroy it all so that you trust me to provide for you. And so Saul takes the Israelites, they go off to war, and they win. And they kill the livestock. Well, actually, they only kill some of the livestock. They end up keeping the best. Well, in a strange turn of events, the prophet Samuel shows up. Samuel appears, and, and King Saul, with the thrill of victory still ringing in his heart, he sees the prophet and says, oh, the Lord bless you, welcome, we've done as the Lord commanded. And I think Samuel kind of raised his eyebrow and says, Really? If you've done what the Lord commanded, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep in my ear? Suddenly Saul takes a step back and goes, uh, uh, well, um, it was the people. Yeah, the, the, the people didn't kill everything, and, and they kept the best so that we could sacrifice it to God. That, that's a good thing, right? And Samuel replies with this. This is 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, 
To obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. It's hard to obey. Whether you're King Saul, an Israeli soldier, a a, a kid, or, or just human, we find it difficult to obey. Because we see that livestock and we know how much it's worth and we want to keep some of it. We see the lollipop or the toy that our big brother has and so we want to snatch it out of their hands despite what mommy says. And and, and why does the government insist I pay taxes? It's my money that I made at my job. I don't want to obey. And so we find obedience difficult. (laughs) And yet today... We're going to hear that God, King Jesus, wants us to obey. But I hope that you hear today that it isn't because God's trying to take something from us. Rather, this is all about what God wants for us. Last week, we kicked off this uh, 21 days of prayer with this year's theme of praying the king's agenda. In order for us, though, to pray the king's agenda, we actually have to first hear the king's agenda. And last week we saw that it's not just kind of hearing it with our ears, not even just like registering it with our minds, but actually hearing it in our hearts where it compels us to go and do. In other words, to obey the king's agenda. And that's what we're going to see today. Our key passage for this entire series is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. So if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Matthew 28. It's the passage that I opened up uh, with. If you are a first-time guest with us, whether you're here in the room with us or you're online, uh, thanks for coming. Uh, We open up the scriptures every single week. Uh, In fact, this past week, uh, talking to uh, one of our elders, he was saying that the reason that he chose to be part of Riverwood was because we just didn't have Bible-centered preaching. We had Bible-driven preaching. We, we believe that this is the word of God and that what God has recorded for generations, the truths in it still, rec- still hit us today. It resonates to our hearts and lives today. We believe that these scriptures are trying to help turn us into people who are more like Jesus. We, we believe that, as, as you heard Jake talk about, you know, the chaos that's in our world, what we feel our, our world needs are people who love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And part of how God shapes and molds us is through his scripture. We saw last week that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so if you're a first-time guest, don't worry about trying to follow along with, with open up in a Bible. We're going to have the scripture on the screen for you. But I encourage you, download a Bible to your phone or, or get a paper copy of the Bible and then bring it next time you join us because we're going to be in this again next week and every week after. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is our key passage. So let's read that again, this time you reading along with me um, uh, silently as I read aloud, and then we'll pray. All right, so Jesus is on top of this mountain in Galilee. He's standing there with his 11 disciples. Remember, there used to be 12, but uh, Judas uh, has betrayed Jesus and then went and committed suicide. So there's now just the 11. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
All right, Heavenly Father, uh, we are now coming to your holy word. I pray that you would be the one to teach us today, that this wouldn't be just about what I have prepared, but it's what you want for your people. God, everyone listening to this is at a different place spiritually. Some are doing fantastic. Some right now are struggling. Some have been following you for a long time, and so they know a lot. Some uh, have been following you, but they're still learning. Some, they, they don't know you quite yet, and they're, they're curious, and they're, they're here to, to understand, is this whole Jesus story true. So God, I pray that you do what only you can do, that you would take what I, as just one man, can say, and you would take it and use it as you need to in the hearts and minds of, of those listening. Because God, I believe that you are wanting to shape us to be more like Jesus. So help us today to hear, to want to obey, and, and to, to do it immediately, to, to do it uh, willingly, uh, to do it because we trust you and we just fully will surrender to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, this passage in uh, Matthew 28, uh, we, we saw last week, it's got a nickname. Uh, it's a very famous passage known as the Great Commission. Uh, it's Jesus' last command right before he ascends up to heaven. You can read about that ascension in Acts chapter 1. And, and, and so Jesus gives this last command. And, and basically, you heard there that this last command is to go and make disciples. But Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't just say, all right, I want you to go and make disciples and then leave them going, okay, so how do we do that? He, he gave them a few clarifiers. The, the first clarifier he gives there is that they are to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, when it says nations, it does not just mean like geopolitical lines drawn around certain geographical regions. No, the word nations there could be translated people groups. It's like all people. In, in other words, we get a glimpse of this, by the way, in the book of Revelation. At the end times, heaven, in front of God's throne, it's filled with all tribes, tongues, nations, peoples. In other words, Jesus didn't die just for the Jews. This gospel is not just for those who were in the Roman Empire at the time. It's not just for white people. This gospel is for all. Which means, if you in your heart and your mind have a problem with a certain demographic you might be a little frustrated in heaven. Like if you see certain people and you think that maybe you're a little better because of, of skin color or, or, or because of maybe economic status or maybe because of what region they live in, you may be a little shocked when you get to heaven because it is going to be a just absolute beautiful mosaic of people. All tongues, all tribes will be there worshiping because we are to make disciples of all nations. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He tells us what to do as we go into all these nations. He says that we are to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice, it says in the name. Not names plural, in the name. That's because there is one God. He reveals himself in three persons. And it's not modalism where there's one God who appears sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, and sometimes as the Holy Spirit. No, it's one God existing as three persons all the time, completely unified. They are one. And yet, there is God the Father, who we often pray to. There's God the Son, Jesus, who's giving us these words right here. God the Holy Spirit, who we talked about last week. And notice, you are to be baptized into their name. Which means if you say you're a follower of Jesus, you'd say I'm a Christian, but have not been baptized, you're not following the king's agenda. The king's desire for you is to be baptized. Because you see, the Greek word baptizo, it means identification. 
And so when you are baptized, you're saying, I identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's why we step into water and we say we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ, so we go down in the water and raised to walk in newness of life. And so if you are a follower of Jesus and have not been baptized, <laughs> let's get baptized. Let's do it. Crosspoint has already offered us their, their portable baptistry. We can bring it in here. We could go to the W. They've let us rent it out before. We can do it in the pool. Don't delay. Be baptized. It's part of the king's agenda. And when you get baptized, guess what? You then get to go into all the nations, which includes this nation, these people groups around us, and we get to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But then I want to highlight the third clarifier that Jesus gives. It's verse 20. These disciples from all nations, as we baptize them, notice we are to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, I'm using the English Standard Version today. The, the ESV translates this word to observe, but that, the, the Greek I learned this week, it can mean to keep, to protect, to guard, or to obey. And I personally like the idea of, of translating it obey, because sometimes when I see the word observe, it just means I'm kind of looking at it. If it was to keep, it might think, well, okay, we'll memorize his commands. Or, or to guard, well, I respect his word so much, we're going to guard these words. But when it's to obey all that he's commanded, now I have to go and like actually do something. But as we pointed out, to obey is difficult. Like there, there's something in our heart that when someone gives us a command, someone gives us a request, sometimes we don't want to do it. Last night, my wife says, hey, Aaron, as you're camped out in front of the TV watching football, could you just like fold these clothes? And inside, no. <laughs> Outside, yeah, 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 I, I can do that. I, by the way, was too late, and she did it anyway. She's awesome. I am not. But there's something in our hearts. We see the sign that says, do not walk on the lawn. And we think, who are they to tell me that? Like, my feet are not going to destroy your lawn. Like, I have freedom. I have rights. Can't I do what I want? Not if you're going to follow the king. We're going to talk about this a little bit, but so often we don't want to obey because it seems confining. It seems restrictive. But what I hope you see today is that it actually brings freedom. So how do you do it? How do you get to this place where you actually want to obey? I think it requires a change in perspective. And so today we're going to look at what true obedience is and how our minds need to change about it. And I think then as we have that perspective change, as it says in Romans 12:1, we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So as our minds change about this idea of obedience, I think it will help lead us to not only be able to obey the king's agenda, but to do it joyfully, to do it willingly, and to come into the kind of life that I think all of us desire and I believe that God has for us. So the first thing I want to point out about obedience to help, help change our perspective is that obedient to obey, oh wait, no, I am jumping way ahead. I need to stop. Sorry about that, Salem. And sorry to the, those of you online. Um, I, I, want to, I want to go through some examples before we get to that, that, that place. Um, the, by the way, the examples I'm going to give uh, today, that some of you, you're going to get uncomfortable. Uh, and I'll, I'll be honest, some about what I'm about to say makes me uncomfortable. 
And that's because some of what we're going to see in the scriptures that, that God calls us to obey, it actually runs counter to where our culture is at. That, that's because culture is always changing, but the, the word of God never does. And, and so there's times where our culture says, oh, I like that in the Bible. But then over time, it may change and go, no, that, I don't think that anymore. And, and so sometimes the, uh, our, our culture says, yeah, that's good. For instance, I, I think our culture really, really likes uh, Matthew 7, 1. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus preaches, judge not that you be not judged. And so if someone in our culture, even a non-Christian, feels like you're judging them, they throw this in your face. Hey, Jesus tells you not to judge. Do not judge. Or if, if someone's being kind of nasty at them, they, they throw back uh, verse 12 of chapter 7, the, the golden rule, that whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So they, our, our culture loves this. They'll throw this in your face, say, hey, this is how you should live. Okay, yeah, I, I agree. We, we should live this way. But there's other things that Jesus says, including in the exact same sermon that makes some of us uncomfortable. For instance, back in chapter 5, Jesus starts preaching about lust. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And our culture looks at that and goes, oh, yeah, right. That, that, no, that's impossible. I, like, seriously, that's so old-fashioned. I mean, like, as long as you don't touch, there's no harm being done. Like, it's fine and healthy to, to go online and look at certain things. It can sometimes help relationships. You know, no, it's, this is how we're wired. We're just human. We've got these lustful things. As long as you don't touch, or if you touch, as long as there's consent. Like, what two consenting adults do together, that's none of our business. It's fine. That, this is out of touch. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, lust is, is bad. But, but some of you listen to this, you're, you're saying, oof, because you struggle to not go and look at certain things online. Sometimes when you're at the store, or you're on the street, or you're at the gym, or you're just watching TV, and you see an attractive person, your mind will go to places that Jesus right here is saying, no, that's not where you're supposed to go. <laughs> you may try and justify it. Well, it's not harming anyone. Like, I go to work, I do fine, I'm able to interact with people. But Jesus is saying, no, there, there's something going on deeper. It, it's not best for you. Part of the king's agenda is that you not lust. Because that person bears the image of Jesus, and you aren't to take it and use it for your own benefit. Instead, you are to serve and help them to know Jesus and follow him. If that wasn't uncomfortable enough, how about you continue on? Jesus doesn't hold back. He, he goes into divorce next. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now it gets really uncomfortable because I know some of you have been divorced. Some of you have been remarried. I have family members, good friends, who've gone through it. And I don't think anyone in, in our culture goes, oh yeah, divorce, yeah, it's fun. It, actually, it's kind of fun to get divorced. No, I think our culture goes, yeah, it, it hurts, it's painful. You know, you committed yourself to someone and then, then it fell apart, yeah, that's too bad. But you know what, there's someone else out there for you. Like, just go get remarried. Like, we, we have no-fault divorce. 
I, I, I had a friend that I, I basically was counseling because her husband had no excuse to divorce her. She did not want the divorce, and yet he just went through with it. They were from Texas, and so Texas had no-fault divorce. She couldn't stop it. He just wanted nothing to do with her. And it hurts, and it's painful. And yet our culture goes, ah, it's no big deal. You'll get over it. There's someone else. And Jesus is saying, no, this is sin, except for marital unfaithfulness. And I, I believe also you can make a biblical case for abuse. But he's saying, you can't be casual with this because he says in Matthew 19, 6, that what God has joined together, let man not separate. It talks about the two becoming one flesh and we are not to rip that flesh apart. Yeah, but Aaron, you don't know what she's like. Like she's great out in public, but man, at home, she is so nasty. Oh, I'm nasty? Man, you are married to your job. You're never even around. You're always checked out in front of the TV. I'm done. I can't stand it. I know Jesus says it's a sin. I can't take it anymore. I'm out. I told you obedience is hard. That's why we need that change of perspective. So the first thing that I think we need to, to realize about obedience is that to obey means to respond immediately. To obey means to respond immediately. Another way to say it is that his agenda is more important than my agenda. Um, I had a, a pastor kind of mentor in my life when my family and I moved to Cedar Rapids where I was the young adult pastor at a church. The, the senior pastor kind of took me under his wing. First time anyone had ever just reached out to me and began to disciple me. And I really came to respect uh, Pastor Ray. Ray Barrett was his name. Uh, unfortunately, I only got 11 months with Ray. He passed away with prostate cancer uh, 11 months after I, I met him. Um, but it, that 11 months was, was great. And I remember one time Pastor Ray saying that delayed obedience is not true obedience. Now, don't, don't get me and Ray wrong. I, I'd rather you obey late than not at all. But he's right. If you delay your obedience, it's not true obedience. To truly obey means you respond immediately. Now, in a little bit, we're going to talk about God's grace in, in, in our uh, mistakes and our sin. Uh, we're going to get to that. But, but you do need to realize that, that true obedience means you do it immediately. There, there's no delay. Because, you see... When you're really, really tempted to go and look at those things, whether in movies or online, the, the Spirit is saying, don't do it. That's not my best for you. You need to respond immediately. When you find yourself tempted to have yet another drink, and yet the Spirit's saying, no, you need to be controlled by the Spirit, not by alcohol, you need to respond immediately. When you find yourself wanting to go and purchase something that you don't have the money for, and yet you're still going to go ahead and do it, the scriptures, the king's agenda is saying, no, you need to trust God. I can provide for you. You need to respond immediately. That's where true obedience is. Because when you respond immediately, you're basically saying, his agenda is far more important than my agenda. My agenda wants this thing, but God has something better. It's more important. All right, so that's the first thing. We need to respond immediately because his agenda is more important. The second thing that I want you to realize about obedience is that to obey means to trust, to trust. In other words, his agenda is better than my agenda. Uh, too often when we hear a command, whether it be from a parent uh, or a boss, uh, the government, uh, or even from God himself, when, when we hear that command, we don't want to do it. I, I was talking a little earlier about how we find uh, obedience really, really confining but you see, when God calls us to something, it isn't to restrict us. It isn't to rob us of something. It's actually the opposite. He actually has something better for us. It's actually for our joy. 
And so we've got to come to this place where we're saying, God, I trust you because it's not that his agenda is just more important. It's actually better for us. Now, this is true when it comes to money. I mean, there's, there's times where I just see something and like, oh, I really want that. I almost made a, a purchasing mistake this past December. Like, I, I, I want that, I want that, and I had myself convinced of it. And then I delayed and realized, actually, I ended up with something better. It's, this is true about sexual ethics. There's certain things our culture says that, oh, no, this is fine. And, and yet, God's agenda is different. But it's not because he's trying to keep something from us. It's that he has, actually has something better for us. This is, is it true in relationships with other people. It, we've got to come to a place where we're saying, God, I trust you because your agenda is better than my agenda. So we need to respond immediately. To, tr- to obey means to trust. Third, to obey means to surrender. To surrender. In, in other words, it's saying that his, it's really all about his agenda, not my own. I think most of us wake up each day with our plans, our schedule on our mind. I mean, one of the first things I do you know, each morning, or actually I do it at night as I'm brushing my teeth, getting ready for bed, I start looking at my calendar. What, what, what do I have tomorrow? Because that's my schedule. And, and yet... James, the brother of Jesus, warns us about keeping our own agenda. This is in uh, James's only letter that we have from him, chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In other words, we need to surrender our plans, surrender our schedules, surrender our agenda, because really, our life is to be all about His agenda. Uh, This week, I had uh, quite a few interruptions. Uh, and, and don't misunderstand me. They were actually all really good interruptions. Uh, I was here at the building. Uh, a friend I hadn't seen in a while was driving by. He hadn't seen our new building yet, so he stopped by. I was able to give him a tour. And then we sat in the office and we talked for well over an hour. It was really, really good. But I hadn't planned that time. I had a couple other meetings that I, I thought were going to take about this long. And they ended up taking about this long. Uh, a couple of phone calls that I just hadn't been expecting. And, and they ended up being really, really good phone calls. But I still hadn't planned for them. And so when Thursday rolls around, and it's Thursday afternoon, and I realize I haven't even started my sermon yet, I started getting frustrated. Because I typically like to start on Tuesday. If I can't get to it Tuesday, I like starting Wednesday. And so here it is, Thursday afternoon, and I'm starting to get a little frustrated. Not scared, but I'm just wondering, what is Friday and Saturday going to look like? And so I, I'm getting really bothered, like, oh, that, you know, these other things that were good, but oh, I needed this time. Then I start studying, I start working on this, I come to obedience, and I'm working through, and oh yeah, to, to obey means to surrender, and oh yeah, that passage in James, and I read it, and I think, oh, I wasn't surrendering my schedule to God. I, here were these God-placed moments that he put in my life on Tuesday and Wednesday, and I saw him do some wonderful things. And I'd have missed them if I had made it all about my agenda. God forced me this week to have an illustration for my sermon by interrupting me with some good things. And I would have missed out. 
when you start realizing it's really all about his agenda, and when different things come into your life, into your schedule, and they, they cause you to have to divert, it, it's actually not the wrong thing. It may actually be a God thing. And so we need to surrender because it's all about his agenda and not mine. And then the last thing I want to point out is that to obey the king's agenda means to begin again. To obey means to begin again. In other words, you've got to leave behind your past mistakes to take up yet again his agenda. I think when Jesus is standing on that Galilean mountain with his 11, he knows they're going to screw up. We're not going to go into it, but remember he said to go into all the nations? They, they, at first, they don't go into all the nations. He, he knew that we would sometimes not say the right words. We wouldn't do exactly as he calls. But yet he said, he finished that by saying, I will be with you always to the end of the age. I think by him saying, I will be with you always, isn't just this promise of, hey, my presence will be with you. It's also a sign of his forgiveness. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just for our past sins. It's for our present and our future sins. And so he's saying, guys, I know you're going to screw up. You've got to leave behind the past mistakes and put your eyes forward and pick up yet again my agenda. Just, just look at Peter. Peter is one of Jesus' disciples. He's standing on that mountaintop. He's one of the 11, and he hears Jesus give this final command. And yet, just 40 days earlier, he is denying that he even knows Jesus. And not just once, not just twice, three times in one night. And yet Jesus, in John chapter 21, takes Peter, take a walk along the shoreline, have a conversation, and he restores Peter. And we see Peter take his eyes off of that past big mistake and put his eyes forward. As you jump into the book of Acts, you see Peter and John in chapter 3 walking to the temple to go and worship. And there's this beggar man, and he's, he's lame, he can't walk, so he can't hold a job, and so he's just asking for money. And so Peter looks at him and says, hey, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Peter takes him by the hand, suddenly the guy's legs are strong, the guy can walk. He starts leaping, jumping, praising God, and it gathers a crowd. And so with a crowd, Peter does what he's supposed to do, make disciples. So he starts preaching about Jesus. Well, the temple officials don't exactly like this. And so the temple guards come and they arrest Peter and John, take them before the Sanhedrin. And in chapter 4, we see them standing in front of the Sanhedrin. That The Sanhedrin was the Jewish high court. It was their supreme court. And if you want to talk about a power imbalance, these were the most respected, powerful guys in their day. So here's Peter and John, a couple of uneducated fishermen, standing before the most respected, most educated, most powerful men in society. And these powerful men look at them and say, do not preach about Jesus. Now, if Peter's eyes were in the rearview mirror, if all he could do was look back and see, I failed, he'd wilt right then and there. But that's not what happens. In fact, Peter stands there in Acts 4, Verses 19 and 20 says this, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. <laughs> Clearly, though, the disciples didn't hear Peter. Because in the next chapter, we see Peter arrested yet again, brought before the exact same people. Over in chapter 5, verse 29, they say, um, sorry, 28, they said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. 
And yet here you are, filling Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So they're pressuring him yet again. You be quiet. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered them, we must obey God rather than men. Peter knew, I screwed up big. I denied the Messiah, the Son of God. And yet, he left that behind to look forward because his king said, here's my agenda. Go and make disciples. Peter, you can do it. Go and feed my sheep. Begin again. Some of you, you're trying to drive through life looking in your rearview mirror. By the way, kids, that's not how you drive. You look through the windshield. The rearview mirror there is there to just give you reference. It's to learn what's behind you. But you learn from it so you can go forward. To follow the king's agenda means you don't look back at your past mistake. You realize that has been forgiven through the cross of Christ. And so now you can move forward. So I wanted, what I want to do is I want to create just some prayer time for us because some of you, you need to let go of that past. Some of you, you're, you're holding on to that. And by holding on to that, what you're basically saying to Jesus is, okay, I know you died on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins, but it wasn't quite enough. I've got to beat myself up for this. But in order for you to obey the king's agenda, you're going to have to let that go. And so you need to spend some time right now just surrendering, saying, God, I confess that sin. Help me to let it go so that I can go forward and I can begin again. Some of you, you need to grow in your surrender. You, you have plans for your life. You've got certain things you want to accomplish. And by surrendering, it doesn't mean it's done. Like, I've got to give that up and God's never going to use me that way. No, to, to surrender it means God, I'm going to let you do with this what you need to. Maybe he doesn't want you doing that at all. Maybe he's going to change it because he's going to actually do it better. So this next time of prayer, you need to kind of open up and say, God, I surrender because it's all about your agenda, not mine. Some of you, you need to grow in trust. You, you, you need to say, God, I'm struggling to trust you because of this in my past, because this happened, it didn't seem like you were there. And yet you need to come to a place where you realize that, that God's agenda is actually better than yours. So you need to begin this change, have your perspective uh, uh, changed. And then others of you, you need to, uh, you, you need to, uh, uh, what's point one? Oh yeah, you need to confess your delay. <laughs> Some of you, you, you know God has said, here's what I want for you. And yet you've been delaying. God's been telling you, hey, I want you to go and help that neighbor. I want you to reach out to that difficult person at work or, or at school. I, I, I want you to, to go and do this. Some of you, maybe God's been saying, I want you to go into overseas missions. Others of you saying, I want you in full-time ministry. But you keep delaying. because I, I just don't know that I can do that. And, and God is saying, no, I, I want you to. And so just, I just want us to take 60, 90 seconds of just silent prayer. Jesus is just going to quietly pray. This is time for you to deal with God, to give these things over to him, and then after the time, we'll move into a, our moment of communion. So Heavenly Father, right now, I just pray you'd hear the prayers of your people, that as they surrender 
as they seek to grow in trust, as they confess their delay, as, as they say that they need to begin again, meet them right now where they're at, minister to their hearts, and let them hear your love, let them hear your forgiveness, let them sense your presence and your call to follow and obey the King's agenda.